in Galatians chapter 5, making steady progress. Um, taking the opportunity to look at the uh, application of the truth uh, that we have for us in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, this morning we're going to be uh, beginning in verses <clears throat> uh, 13 and 14. Uh, and, and we're going to take some time to break some things down uh, this morning, define some terms uh, from a biblical perspective, and just take the opportunity to look at what the Word of God is teaching us. So um, let's begin. Let's read verses 13 and 14. It says, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So I want to begin first off by somewhat in reverse. Let's let's define what the flesh is. Uh, and I think that in somewhat inherently, we as believers have an idea what it is, but from a biblical perspective, uh, let's try to define it so that we have a basis of understanding. And that basis of understanding becomes critical as we begin to move forward into other applications this morning where Paul says to walk in the Spirit. So in Romans chapter 7, if you'll turn there with me, uh, I, I think that we find here in this passage, in this particular verse, a definition of what the flesh is. And wherever else we find it as we progress in, in Galatians chapter 5 next week, looking at the fruits of the Spirit and those kinds of things, we're going to see some examples, some fruits of the flesh. And so we can identify it by its characteristics in some respects, uh, but in Romans chapter 7, verse 17, Paul says, and here he is discussing this struggle with sin, and he says, Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. And so if we're going to define the flesh, it is the, the persistent sin nature in the believer. It is the sin that we have within us, the sin dwelling in us. Now, as believers, this doesn't have to define us, and we're going to talk about our dual nature, so to speak, uh, as we kind of close this morning. But when we talk about the flesh and how it operates, it operates through our lusts. Right? There are drives and desires that our flesh may have that, that sin may try to manifest through us. And as we look at some of the lists throughout Scripture, uh, the put-ons and the put-offs and those things, they are characteristics of this sin nature being manifest in how we live. And in these, these lusts, they form the basis of our temptation. Uh, it turns me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. <clears throat> there we go. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So that is a description of temptation. Here is this desire, this sin welling up, as it were, within us and, and wanting to be manifest, wanting to be exercised, practiced, engaged in. That's temptation. The temptation itself is not sin. The temptation is simply 
the indwelling of sin within us, and it forms the conflict that we experience as believers, that we are living in a sin-filled world, that we ourselves uh, struggle with sin. All of that, true, all of that haven't been covered in the past. And he says here, he continues on uh, in verse 15, then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So ultimately, the the end result when we yield to that temptation, when we serve the flesh, that's sin. And sin brings forth death. The end result, and has always been, since the very beginning of time, the end result is death. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, for a moment. Verses 12 through 14, we have some admonition here, some exhortation from Paul uh, that we should, uh, as he begins in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. That term reign means to rule. We're not letting sin rule in us. There's going to be a different mode of conduct, a different operation of faith and trust that we're going to put forth, and it's not going to be engaging in sin any longer. So we're not going to yield ourselves, uh, and we're not going to let sin reign. Verse 13, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So we had an interesting conversation last night, and part of this conversation was just the practicality of the Christian life. As we, as we look at people and, and regard to ministry, we, we see these things where uh, I want to serve the Lord, I want to be in ministry to people, I want to serve God, and we have an ideal of what that looks like. Maybe I want to be a missionary, maybe I want to express that in and being a worship leader, maybe I want to express that in being a pastor, whatever it may be, that we, we, we put it in this box. And the reality is that ministry is something far more practical than that. And that, what we were talking about last night is here is an intern, and they want to serve the Lord. They have a real desire. The way they get to serve the Lord is by taking care of this spreadsheet, which doesn't sound glorious or fun or is even potentially recognizable. But listen, this is something you don't know how to do. This is something that you get to operate in. You get to take care of this spreadsheet, learn how to work in Excel and do those things for the glory of the Lord in service of the ministry that is happening here. So we can choose to yield our members, our fingers and all those things, typing on that keyboard to the service of God, or we can tend to use them for other things to gratify the flesh. That's the yielding to that temptation. That's the engaging in sin. And we do so through the instruments of our body, that those parts of us that, that do things. He says in uh, verse 14, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin shall not have dominion over you. This would make more sense as we progress this morning, but... We see that within, within our understanding of the flesh, 
this sin, this indwelling sin that we have, our natural nature, that there's an inward to an outward progression. That it starts in the heart and mind, and it manifests itself in the outward. Just as Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. We're going to conduct ourselves based on what's inside. We also have to understand that the lusts of the flesh are deceitful. They promise uh, gratification. Wow. They, They promise liberty and all of these kinds of things, but those are false promises. In uh, Romans 6.16, he says, Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So we choose to engage and to yield ourselves to that temptation. We choose, we become a servant, a slave to it. In John chapter 8, verse 34 John 8.34 says, Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the end thereof is death. In Romans chapter 5, if you'll turn there with me, should have kept our fingers in Romans. In fact, you can keep your finger in Romans. We're going to be back and forth to Romans a fair bit this morning. But in Romans chapter 5, verses, who is a long one, 12 through 21, we have this discussion, and we understand that Romans is telling us where sin came from, where it originated. And in, in this passage in Romans chapter 5, we're also discussing that the end result of sin by Adam was death upon all mankind, and this progression, this progeny of sinful people. Verse 12, Romans 5, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We have this discussion about that, about this, the nature of sin. It promised Adam and Eve that you will become like God. And in the end, that was a lie. It was deceitful. What they experienced in the end is heartache, grief, agony, and death. When sin, when when we indulge in the lust of the flesh, when we yield ourselves and become a slave to it, it always delivers death. In Romans chapter 6, verse 21 through 23. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul is here discussing with the... uh, the Galatians, and we have to understand that uh, the power of sin is in the law. And, and all that simply means is that the the codification of this is what you reap as a result of violating the law 
is prescribed by God, that it exists, that curse of the law that we are under, that we are bound to do every part of it. And so here he's having this discussion with them. Those who seek to be justified by some works of righteousness rather than by justification that is through faith. And as he does so, he brings this to mind. He says, listen, you have been called under liberty. Only use not your liberty for an occasion of the flesh, but by love serve one another. So as we look at this, as we as we progress, we understand that this under this walking in the spirit that he's about to talk about and beginning in verse 16, uh, and he says, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Right? That there is a dichotomy and two opposed things happening. We're going to talk about that this morning. But the flesh is manifest in one way. And that which is not of the flesh, the spirit is manifest in another way. And we're going to talk about that as we get into the fruits of the spirit. One of those, the chief and the first of those being love. And so here we talk about the flesh. Let's define it. This is the basis of our understanding. We use, we have liberty, but we don't use that liberty as an occasion or as an excuse to engage or to indulge the flesh. I'm no longer under the law. Therefore, I can live how I choose to live. I'm not bound to keep it for righteousness. I am justified in Christ, but that doesn't liberate us to be licentious, to engage and to satisfy and gratify the lusts of our flesh. I don't know if you know this, but in Romans chapter 6, he says, now you are servants of God. We've chosen to yield ourselves and to serve him in what we do and how we act, how we speak, in how we serve and how we show love. So as we redefine and just take a moment to quickly look at liberty, which is simply defined as not being tied to the law for righteousness, that's, that is the liberty that we enjoy as believers. He says in, in Galatians 5.1, stand fast, therefore in the liberty where Christ has made us free, and don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Right? We stand firm there. We're unwavering in it. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, here he's talking about us being those Jesus Christ coming in the fullness and the appropriate time. And he says, the purpose for his coming, verse 5, to redeem them that were under the law, that they might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of a son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. The nature of the relationship, while we are servants of God, we have yielded ourselves to that. That should become our regular practice. Our, our position doesn't stay as servant and master necessarily. It is far more intimate than that. God has brought us into his family, adopted us in such a way that we become his children. And as a result of that, with that full uh, upright and adult standing in the family of God, we have the inheritance. At the end of chapter 4, we have Paul using this allegory of Mount Sinai and Hagar and, and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, the son of promise, and all of those things. One that brings about bondage, being an example, an allegory of the law, and another that brings about freedom. And he says that we are not uh, those who are bound to the law. We are not of those uh, who are 
stuck and slaves to every jot and tittle. In Romans chapter 6, again, verses 18 through 22, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, for you have yielded, for as you have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when you were servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become the servants of God, you have fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. This is where we are as believers. This is positionally where we stand, whether we choose to live in that or not. We are to stand fast in that liberty, which is what Paul says in the very first verse of Galatians 5. We read that. And as a result, we have this liberty. We stand firm in it. But it's not an occasion for the flesh. It isn't uh, the opportunity or the starting point where we can indulge ourselves. Being liber liberated from the need to keep the law does not liberate us to a life of indulgence. The fact that our adherence to the law is not a means to righteousness does not justify us in yielding ourselves to unrighteousness. I want to look at a couple of examples uh, of this occasion of the uh, of the flesh in First Corinthians chapter eight. First um, Corinthians chapter eight, verses nine through thirteen. Because we have further instruction within the Word of God about this particular topic. He says, Take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Something that would cause schism and division, that would cause confusion, that would trip somebody up. For if any man see thee which has knowledge, sit at meet in the idol's temple, uh, shall the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols. So he, there's there's this very specific context here. For those who think that it's okay to eat the meat sacrifice idols, those who think that it isn't, and that's exactly what's being discussed. And Paul is saying, listen, we have liberty. We're not engaging in the worship of these idols by eating the meat. I understand the very practical reasons for why you're doing this. He says, but just because we have the liberty, we're not bound to restrain ourselves from those things. Don't use it as an occasion to the flesh. You need to be watchful. If we're going to serve and love others, make sure that the liberty that you have is not a stumbling block to them who might see you there. And he says, he continues on in verse 11, And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. And when you sin so against the brethren... And wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make thy brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world stands, lest I make my brother to offend. Paul says, I am willing to sacrifice the indulgence of myself, the eating of this steak. I tried to make ribs for the really the first time the other day. I was smoking some ribs because I have all these ribs. I'm not, I don't love ribs. 
but at some point you got to get them out of the freezer. So I throw them on, I'm smoking them and they're, they're looking really good. They're tasting really good. And wouldn't you know that? So they're getting just a touch dry. I'm like, okay, I'm going to put some barbecue sauce on them just to kind of seal in whatever moisture is left. Cause they needed to cook about another hour to just let everything break down and be real tender. Well, you know, that started a grease fire somehow. And next thing you know, they go from tasting like delicious smoked meat to tasting like burnt hamburgers in about 45 seconds. You know, I was devastated. I was pretty grumpy about it, actually. But no matter how good those ribs would have been, had that been a stumbling block for somebody, I'm not going to bring them out. Hey, come on over and have ribs with I'm not, I'm not going to do that to them. That, I would rather serve them and serve the Lord in that, showing them love and service by not indulging in the delicious ribs myself. That's what Paul is saying here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as Paul is talking about the, the parts of the body of Christ, each part of the body of Christ being a different um, representation being represented, excuse me, by a different part of the physical body. And just a picture of what, how it's all put together and it works. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25, that there should be no schism or division in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. So we're not going to cause schism. There is this preferring of others above and beyond ourselves. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We mourn with those who mourn. We are there with them. If one member of the body suffers, we should. We are all affected. We are bearing that burden with them. One more example here in First Peter chapter two. First Peter two, uh, verses thirteen through seventeen. First Peter 2.13 Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, and not using your liberty, for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. There's a description here that we as believers should be characterized in a willing submission to those that God has put in leadership. And, I, and, and you hate to put the caveat there out, out there every time, but I don't want to be misunderstood. We are submitting to the Lord in doing that. And so, therefore, we submit to the Lord first and foremost. If there is some contradiction between those that God has put in control and what the Lord has said, then we submit to the Lord first. And we accept the consequence that may be associated with that. But the long and short is that we are serving others, that we are putting them first, that we don't use our liberty as a cloak of maliciousness, 
but we act, we behave ourselves as the servants of God. We, that we honor all men, that we love the brotherhood, that we fear God, and that we honor the king. It's not an occasion. In each one of these examples, we are exhorted to express our liberty in consideration of others. In other words, Christian liberty is characterized and most accurately represented by a lifestyle of love and service. When we're talking about taking liberty uh, or, or abusing liberty in this context, it isn't that we are necessarily engaging in sin, but we are we are engaging in sin and that we may be selfish. I'm taking this opportunity to indulge myself at the cost of others, at the misrepresentation of the Lord. We're told to serve in love. He says in verse 14, for all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Galatians 5.14, love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, Matthew 22, verses 39 and 40. When asked what is the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus responds, as we all know, thou shalt love thy neighbor, the greatest command in the law, is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. It's the first and the greatest commandment. And he says the second is like to, like unto it. Verse 39, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And on those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And in Romans chapter 13, we are, we are told that we are to know, owe no man anything except for the debt of love, the obligation that we would sacrifice and put them first, that we would serve Christ, that we wouldn't use the liberty and the freedom that we have to not be bound to the law for righteousness as an excuse to not serve, to not conduct ourselves in a way that is becoming of a servant of Christ. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loves another has fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended, or in other words, it is summed up in this saying, Namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So as we look at the occasion that might happen, uh, the, the temptation before us to take our liberty and to serve ourselves first rather than to serve others first, to prefer ourselves and the satisfaction of, of ourselves above the needs and, and satisfaction of others, that is taking occasion to indulge in the flesh. I wouldn't think that most of us would take the occasion to uh, engage ourselves in egregious sin, but we might take occasion to withdraw or to uh, exercise liberty in ways that we, we hadn't. Yeah, I'm not bound to do this, but in so doing, I'm ignoring and I'm not serving I'm choosing to put my needs, my concerns, my, my things first, and others behind that. And here is Paul teaching us that that is indulging the flesh. That is using 
our liberty as an occasion for the flesh. He says in verse 15 of Galatians 5, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. So obviously there's some division that is taking place, some schism as a result of what's happening here. Paul is basically addressing the audience, and remember the context, there are those that are there saying you have to do these things to be saved, that they are compounded with faith in Christ, which is not a gospel at all. It's false teaching. But we have those around us today, and we as believers, while we are to contend for this for the faith and we are to share the truth and love, and we've talked about that, we need to be uncompromising in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not doing so as an indulgence of our flesh. We're not doing so to cause division or schism. This is not a flesh-motivated conversation. There may be times when it is appropriate to separate ourselves from those who would espouse or hold on to untruth, especially if they are knowingly, or even if they are not knowingly, but are unwilling, unrepentant, they seek to bring others into the same bondage. In this context, fleshly indulgence is the ignoring of one another. And so here, there are times when we are going to have to engage, and there are going to be times when we have to suffer long or be patient, understanding with people where they are at. That we may not hold the same belief, that we may have some differences of opinion, we may uh, look at Scripture and come to different conclusions, yet we can still engage in fellowship. Yet I can still accept that you, by faith in Jesus Christ, are born again, and you can accept that I, by faith in Jesus Christ, am born again. We are both adopted into the same family. We both have the same position and right standing with God. Paul's warning is, listen, if we begin to devour each other over every little minutia, we're going to have some problems. And what we have to understand is that kind of engagement is a real fleshly motivated thing. Because we can engage in the conversation in a way that is considering the other first, that is, that is loving, that is, dare I say, tolerant of the disagreement. Doesn't mean that we have to compromise. We're going to stand firmly on truth and lovingly share that truth. But I can part ways agreeing to disagree and let the, let the Lord and His Spirit work in their heart and in my heart. In James chapter 4, if you'll turn there with me, if you'll, you'll remember that in James chapter 4, as he, he begins to talk about the motivations and the things that, that are happening, in the fourth chapter here, he says, Where come wars and fightings among you? And this fleshly motivation, this devouring of one another that Paul is writing about in the book of Galatians, where do they come from? Come they not hence, he says, even of your lusts that war in your members. It is a manifestation. It is you indulging the lust of your flesh. I want to win this argument. I want to be right. I want to convince you, whatever it may be. He says, you lust and you have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. 
You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. Right? Consider here that Paul is addressing false teachers. He's addressing these Judaizers. He is addressing false gospels. But he's not doing so, nor is he praying that they would be convinced and convicted of their sin so that he might be exonerated and he might have the gratif gratification of being right. Restoration is the goal, not recognition. In James chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, he says, What does it profit, my brethren, brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother, that's chapter 2, sorry. James chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. It shouldn't be characteristic of the believer. Yet there are those who are antagonistic in their method and their approach. The message may be correct, but the mode is incorrect. Verse 16, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is, far, is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. I don't think that Paul was a soft man. When it says that he had no small disputation with these Judaizers, I think that there was contention. I think there might have even been shouting. I think there was a very forceful defense of the gospel. Yet here is Paul now exhorting these Galatians that you need to be compassionate in your dealing, that you need to serve these others before yourself, that because we are liberated from righteousness and the obligation to keep any law to be justified in Christ does not mean that we get to cast off these who might be believers but are teaching some untruth. Contend with them, stand for the faith, but do so in a way that honors God. Do so in a way that serves and loves, that doesn't cause division and schism. If the division and schism happens, and we clearly can say, I have owed nobody anything but a debt of love, I have served, I have a clear motivation, my, my conscience is clear in this, then we trust that the Lord has divided those things that needed to be divided. Don't let it be the result of our fleshy indulgence. Don't divide the body and misrepresent the Lord in an effort to be right or recognized or in the name of defense of the faith. He says in verse 16 and 17, this I say then, the result of this discussion is walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. 
And these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. And I want to, we need to define what walking in the Spirit is. And I think that in simple terms and in the context that we're looking at this in, Christian liberty lived out is what walking in the Spirit is. Christian liberty lived out well, in service and in love. Walking in the Spirit, we need to also realize, is an imperative here. This is something that we are commanded to do. This is not something that is optional. It is the exhibition of Christian liberty. Now, I want to I back up just a little bit and, and develop this idea. So, if we turn back to Galatians chapter 3, let's begin in verse 8. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So we understand that the promises that God made to Abraham, that in you all nations of the earth shall be blessed, was fulfilled and is a gospel promise in Jesus Christ. That all nations through him would be saved, that they could come to reconciliation with their Creator. Now, if we jump to verse 14 of Galatians chapter 3, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, we, we just kind of briefly looked at this even in Ephesians the other night, but this seal of the Holy Spirit, the earnest of our inheritance, what God gives us as a distinguishing characteristic, as it were, and the promise that He will finish the work that He has started in us is, in fact, the Holy Spirit. It's also by the Spirit we find in Galatians 4, verse 6, And because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's by the Spirit that we are adopted into the family of God. So here we're talking about walking in the Spirit. We're, we're talking about this engaging in uh, habitual conduct, because that's what the word walk means. Here we are in the Spirit, we, and we receive the promise of the Holy Spirit by faith, and by faith in Jesus Christ, in that promise to bless all nations, to save and, and to bring unto Himself those which are lost. And we have this this idea that we need to continually and habitually, that this is what this is normative of our lifestyle, that we would walk with in the Spirit. In other words, this is a statement about discipleship of the Holy Spirit, which is not something that you hear phrased in that way very often, but I think that it helps our understanding. Now, uh, you need to understand that both in Jewish culture and in Greek culture, in Jesus' day, Discipleship would look differently than we would look at it today. If we're going to disciple somebody today, we're going to get together and we're going to have focused Bible study. We're going to we're going to engage in the Word of God with that person. You know, maybe it's an hour or two a week or, or whatever time permits. But disciples in Jesus's day were different. If I was going to become a disciple of this rabbi, then I lived with that rabbi. I observed him in everything that he did. It was not a lecture-based method of learning. Instead, they lived with their master day in and day out. They saw and heard the wisdom of their master. 
and by reason of experience and interaction, they became like him. We read in the book of Hebrews that those that should have been able to teach, but they couldn't, they were unskillful in the word of truth. That they needed to grow and to mature and become those who by reason of, of use had their senses discerned to be, their senses, by reason of use, boy, I can't remember. They could discern good and evil because they had been engaged in the word. This discipleship of the Holy Spirit, and in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, he says that you're, you're going to, as a disciple, you're going to become like the Master. In John chapter 8, if you'll turn there with me, John chapter 8, John 8, <clears throat> verses 31 and 32. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So here we are. If we're gonna, and, I'm, and I'm drawing a conclusion here. Walking in the Spirit is listening, learning, and living the word of God. We understand that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to lead us in truth, to reprove us of the things that need to be reproved, but chiefly reminding us of the Word of God, of what Jesus has taught from Genesis to Revelation. So as we engage in this walking in the Spirit, we have the influence of the Spirit in our lives as He is leading us in truth as he is discipling us in the word of God that becomes part of the sanctification process where we are confronted by the mirror of scripture having to deal with where we stand uh, how we interact with the word of God and what we think about it and then by his grace bring every thought captive to the mind of Christ so that the abundance of my heart may now be the word of God and that lived out for see. John Gill, who was a, a commentator, a pastor, contemporary with Charles Spurgeon. In fact, Charles Spurgeon was a disciple of John Gill. This is what he said. Making the word inspired by him the rule of behavior, which as it is the standard of faith, so of practice. And is the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path, taking him himself for a guide who not only guides into all truth, but in the way of holiness and righteousness under the land of uprightness, and depending upon his grace and strength for assistance throughout the whole of our walk and conversation, or in the exercise of the graces of the Spirit of God. If we're going to walk in the Spirit, it means that we are engaged in the Word of God by the leading and direction of the Holy Spirit. So much so that we would yield ourselves servants to what God has called us to. What he has said in his word. That we would choose rather to serve 
those within the body of Christ, because that's what his word says, and to indulge ourselves. He makes a very strong statement, and it comes out in the in the English, perhaps not as strong, but it's it's a double negative, which in a double negative in English is a positive, but a double negative in Greek is twice as bad. He says, you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And that literally means what it says. You shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You won't. It's an impossibility is what it means. Now, the reality for you and I is we understand that that's not our experience. The Word of God is true. But here I am, and here is Paul in Romans 7 talking about his struggle with sin. We looked at that, some of that earlier. So how do we reconcile that? How do we look at this this confirmatory statement that if I walk in the Spirit, that if I submit myself to the Word of God by direction of the Holy Spirit, by His grace to put it into practice in my life, that I won't fulfill the lust of the flesh, yet I struggle with sin, how do we reconcile that? How do we balance the truth of Scripture? I think in Romans chapter 8 for, is a good place to begin. Romans chapter 8, uh, let's begin in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. So just pause there. We have this description that positionally we are without condemnation. We are justified by faith. And that as we walk in the Spirit, there we would be uh, walking in the law, the absolute truth that would say that if we walk in the Spirit, we're not going to be condemned. There would be no accusation that would stand, which is true positionally as well. But we, we have to understand that there's a distinction in, in the position and the experience. That positionally in Christ, we are forgiven, we are justified, and that is the reality of who we are. And that's what Scripture is conveying to us here. Yet there is the, re, the reality of our existence, that we live in a sin-filled world, that we are conceived in sin, and that we are redeemed sinners with this dual nature, which we're going to talk about here in just a moment. So here we are. We we if we mind the things that if we for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. In other words, their sole pursuit is to gratify and satisfy and indulge in those temptations. They're not trying to withhold themselves from it. And even if they do, it is simply a gratification of some spiritually, some fleshly yet spiritual desire. I want to be right with God. It's a very narcissistic uh, kind of theology that I can uh, that I can impose my righteousness here. That the Lord must be uh, receiving of the righteousness that I have. It's very fleshly desire. 
it's no different than saying that person over there just needs to get on board with my liberty and I'm going to live how I want to live. There's zero difference. So he continues on, they that are after the spirit, they mind the things of the spirit. Be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it cannot be subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. They're, they're in the flesh. They're not redeemed. They are those who are not in service to God. They are those who characterize their life by a continual indulgence And whether they be saved and they're slipping in their relationship, so to speak, they're they're spinning their wheels in their Christian liberty because they use it as an occasion for the flesh, or whether they're non-believers, the end result is that they are not minding the things of the Spirit. They're not submitting themselves to the leading of the Spirit, the conviction of the Spirit, to the grace of the Spirit, to walk in truth. They're not engaging with God's Word as the Spirit directs. He says in verse 9, and this is a, a statement of fact in many respects, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Remember that the promise that, that we would receive the Holy Spirit, talked about back in Galatians that we, that we just reviewed, right? These promises that God kept. I'm going to bless everybody. I'm going to save everyone through Abraham's lineage. That's a promise that I'm making. And when I do that, I'm going to demonstrate my willingness to finish the work that I started in them by sealing them with the Holy Spirit, by giving them my indwelling presence. And I'll have this ministry with them where I lead them in truth, where I instruct them, where I convict them, where I sow grace in their hearts that they might have the empowerment to do the things that are here. There is a conscious choice to be made in many respects. We are in the Spirit because we are adopted into the family of God, because we have been given the Spirit. We are by by fact in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Right? We receive the Spirit, therefore I know that I'm in the Spirit. There's a positional statement, and there is a statement of reality. Now, if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If we're not sealed, if we are not born again, if we aren't given the Spirit at that moment of our salvation and adopted into the family of God, then we're not His. Now in Romans chapter 6, if we turn a few pages back, Romans 6, uh, we looked at this earlier, verses 16 through 18. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are and whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. That here in the middle of all this, there's this discussion about our ability to yield ourselves to engage in sin. We're not talking about a sinless perfection. But as disciples of the Holy Spirit, we take the Word of God as the only standard of both faith and life. And we by faith trust and therefore obey the principles of the Word of God. And in this way, when we are walking in the Spirit, we cannot fulfill the lust of the flesh. Does that mean that tomorrow I'm going to make the conscious choice to operate in faith, to pick up my cross, to follow Him, and to be walking in the Spirit? Uh, perhaps not. 
because we are dual natured. We have this positionally sound where we, we are definitely forgiven. We are never losing. We are secure in the justification that God has granted us. But there is the experience of our sin that we are, in fact, fleshy. We have sin dwelling in us, just like Paul did. And those two, as it says in Galatians 5.17, those two natures are opposed to one another. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And the true are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Even in this idea that there is a walking in the spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, there is a description and understanding that there is an internal battle that happens. I want you to understand, though, that this verse 17, in many response, is a statement of confidence that if we do walk in the spirit, that we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. That if we are sowing to the Spirit, that if we are engaged and yielded to His direction, that that we won't find opportunity to engage in the lust of our flesh. We have these two laws at play within us. And we understand laws of nature, they, they help us grasp spiritual concepts oftentimes. And so let's talk about two spiritual law, two, two physical laws that exist that are opposed to each other. We have the law of gravity, which pulls everything to the center of the Earth's mass. There it is. It falls down. Yet there are other laws that are equally powerful and, and in fact, able to overcome laws of aerodynamics that are able to overcome the law of gravity. It's how airplanes fly. It's, it's, these things can overcome one another, but they're always constantly in conflict. One is trying to pull you down and one is trying to raise you up. Now, here's the thing. As long as we are operating under the principles of aerodynamics, and we're just going to use airplanes because it's my, the simplest example. My mind can understand it a little bit. We have these high and low pressure zones around all the wings and all those things creates lift. We stay in the air. As long as we're moving forward, we stay in the air because there's these unequal pressures. We have lift. You've probably experienced this in your shower. You know, when the water comes through and the shower curtain gets sucked in, it's exactly the same thing that happens to an airplane's wing. Creates lift. So if your shower curtain's coming in, turn your water pressure down and it will stay off to the side. You won't won't have to fight it. But the moment that the airplane stops forward progression, it goes down. It can no longer overcome the effects of gravity without, because another law has now superseded it. And this dual nature that we exist with is very much the same. There's one law, law that is trying to pull us down. The flesh that is in that is indwelling us, that is part of who we are, is there and present. And it's trying to pull us down. Yet the law of walking in the Spirit says that if I walk in the Spirit, that if I am mindful of those things, that if I walk in obedience, that if I yield myself to the grace, to His instruction, to His correction, that I'll overcome that law of indulging in my flesh. 
As I said, it's not a sinless perfection. This is not some attainable thing in this life. There will always be the struggle with the flesh. But one can overcome the other. In Romans chapter 7, as we close this morning, Romans chapter 7, we read part of this earlier, beginning in verse 20. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. It is not who we are. As we go back to Romans chapter 6, and we are, we are dead, we are planted with Christ in the likeness of his, uh, of his resurrection and brought back to life. We are dead to sin. And so therefore, we don't live any longer in it. We're, we're, that positional statement overcomes the, the fact of the matter that we engage and that we struggle with sin. Paul says, it is not I that do it, but it is sin that is living in me. It is that nature that is within me. He goes on to verse 21. For I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. It's there. The struggle is going to continue. And as we progress through, I, I think we'll probably finish Galatians 5 next week as we look at some of the fruits of the flesh. Ultimately, the fruit of the flesh being death. And as we look at the fruits of the Spirit, we see these, those things come to play in our life. We, we see it, two very distinct lifestyles at play. Two very distinct things manifest around us and through us to the world to see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. We praise you that as we take your word and as we look at it, that we see this temperance throughout it, this perfectly fit together structure in that, uh, Lord, as we are told to stand fast and uh, in the liberty that we have in Christ and to contend for the faith that, Lord, it is tempered always by love, that we are honoring you, that we serve others first and foremost. And Lord, that even in the midst of all of this, we have your spirit that would lead us in truth, that as we walk in submission and in, in lockstep, as it were, with your spirit, Lord, you would lead and guide, give us full and correct understanding of truth, that we might live it in a way that is representative of your heart and your will. Lord, I pray that we would be submitted to your spirit, that we would walk in it, that we would take your word as he leads us and guides us and helps us to understand as our sole method and explanation of how we should conduct ourselves. Lord, and when we struggle with sin, when we fall to it, Lord, I pray that we would be those who are quick to repent, to redeem your honor and name, Lord, for your glory. And not only that, but that we might be cleansed from it so that we might represent you better tomorrow than we did today. We praise you for your grace. We praise you for the sacrifice that your son made and all that he has done on our behalf, that he would be made sin so that we could be declared righteous and clothed and covered in righteousness that is satisfactory to you. Lord, I pray that as we Understand that that justification, that exchange of righteousness comes, Lord, only by faith. I pray that even as we believe, Lord, you would help our unbelief. That we might walk in trust. 
that we are forgiven, that we are your children, that we do represent you, Lord, and that you have given us your spirit that we might overcome those fleshly motives and processes. Lord, as we worship this morning, I pray that you would hear us, that you would receive the sacrifice of our lips. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.